Right. We're back on air. Hello and welcome once again to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. We're up to episode seven now as we continue our countdown of the Australian and English cricketers who played in only one Ashes test match. So many stories told and so many left to tell. Today's main guest is the last of our exclusive club to play his solitary Ashes test in the 1960s. Roger Priddo played his one Ashes test at Headingley in 1968. It was to be a match of firsts and lasts. Keith Fletcher also made his test debut at Leeds, while Ken Barrington, who had been dropped for taking too long to score a century against New Zealand in 1965, was playing in his 82nd and final test. Dear old Ken Barrington, I think, I think it was his last test match that he ever played for test at Headingley. And we were standing at the urinal together and he said to me, uh, don't be in too much of a hurry to get off the mark, Fred. And I took his advice well, because I think it took me a few, uh, few overs or so to uh, actually get off the mark. Unlike many of our other One Ashes Test wonders, Roger's performance at Headingley was enough to win him a place for the next test, the final test of the series at the Oval. But illness forced him to pull out of the side the day before, thus creating a place for the returning Basil Oliveira. It was, of course, a decision that changed history. More from Roger soon about his life and times and his take on the Dolavera affair. We'll also hear from the cricket writer and historian David Frith, who was at the Oval in 1968 to witness Dolavera's majestic innings. And Ian Chappell will give us an insight into how the Australian dressing room viewed the unfolding drama and controversy. But before we get to all of that, it's time to take our customary dive into the Ashes archive. And we're going back to 1946-7 in Australia. This series has already yielded two of our one Ashes Test Wonders, Paul Gibb of England and Ron Hammonds of Australia. In the fourth test of that series, at Adelaide, a certain Harvey made his Ashes debut. But it was Merv who would wear the baggy green before his younger and more celebrated brother, Neil. Merv passed away in 1995, but I'm delighted to say that Neil Harvey, 92 at the time of recording, was kind enough to spend some time reminiscing about a very talented sporting family. Well, we had a great time. There were six of us. Our family was six boys and a girl. The girl was the eldest. They were all pretty good cricketers. I mean, two of us played chess cricket, four of us played shield cricket, and the other two played top grade club cricket. We enjoyed what we are doing and probably learned off each other, I think, in the long run. They grew up in the Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy and their cricketing education was spent in the cobbled alleyway next to the family home. That was our Sunday afternoon recreation. It was all fair income stuff, you know. <laughs> and all six brothers, Merv, Neil, Mick, Ray, Brian and Harold, would go on to play cricket for the famous Fitzroy club. All plays for Fitzroy, yep. One stage of the game where the batting order was Harvey, Harvey, Harvey and Harvey. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun doing it and uh, it was all, all pretty good standards, you know. Merv, the eldest brother, was certainly the trailblazer in the family. He was ten years old than me. So, well, he got a test match, so he had to be a good player, didn't he? He played for our club side in Melbourne, Fitzroy. He started... 
as a 15-year-older, and we just automatically followed, one after the other. Merv continued to pave the way for the others to follow, making his first-class debut for Victoria in January 1941 against Queensland, batting at number three. He opened the batting in the next match against New South Wales, scoring 70 in the second innings as Victoria won by 26 runs despite being over 200 behind after the first innings. But before he could really get going, the Second World War intervened and Merv was called up in 1942, aged 23. He was in the Air Force during the war and uh, it was like a lot of up-and-coming cricketers in those days. They, they all got held back, you know. So something you can't avoid. Yeah, I used to follow it in the newspapers every day, you know. They used to put maps in and who was winning and who was losing and how much ground they lost or how much they won. And so I was one of the lucky ones who missed out. Murph had lost some of his best cricketing years, but there was an Ashes place to play for in 1946-7. He made a timely knock in the Boxing Day match against New South Wales, scoring 136 and hooking Rayland Wolf for six into the public bar. Yeah, well, Merv had liked to play the, the hook shot fairly often, so uh, and Ray Lindwell bowling this bouncer and Merv got inside it and hit over the final eight boundary, so that was one of his uh, highlights of his life, I think. <laughs> but even better was to come for Merv when he was selected for the fourth test of the Ashes series at Adelaide. Our opening pair for the fourth test in Adelaide was Barnes and Morris. Same as the 48 team, you know. Uh, that was the opening pair. And just before the uh, Adelaide test, which was the, the fourth one, Barnes injured himself and couldn't play. So they looked around for another opening batsman. It was either Bill Brown or my brother Merv. And they gave Merv a run. You know, he made 11 and 32. And that's the only game he got because Barnes recovered for the fifth test match and... And uh, when Barnes and Morris get together, they're a bit hard to, to split up, aren't they? The first of the family to get a, a test match, so it's going to be a, a big deal, isn't it? It was a big deal, but none of the family got to see Merv in action on his big day. No, none of us went. No, no we couldn't afford to go. We were just a, a working-class family uh, from a working-class suburb. We just couldn't afford to go in the state. It may have been brief... But what did playing in the Ashes mean to Merv? Well, I think he was only just overjoyed that he got a game, you know. He, he knew it was deep down that it was going to be a, a fill-in job only, you know. And it wasn't going to be a permanent place, so, so he was just too delighted to get the, uh, the call-up, you know. Yes, that turned out to be Merv's one and only Test match, but there were more glorious days to come for the Harvey brothers. Neil made his debut for Victoria in 1946, aged only 18, and in the 1947-48 season, Ray was added to the Victorian ranks, playing with Mervyn Neil in his first two matches. In December 1947, Merv made 141 against Western Australia, his final first-class century, and better still, he had Neil out in the middle with him. Oh, that was terrific. Uh, oh, I just admire him because... Being my oldest brother, he uh, he had someone for me to follow. He became captain of Victoria, and he made that hundred and first. And I I made ninety five with him, and I think he made a hundred and seventy partnership. 
So I just looked up to him so much, you know. And fair to say that a lot of people looked up to Neil too. Aussie sporting royalty. A big thank you to Neil for taking the time to share those wonderful memories with us. Stay tuned to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes for more from Neil in future episodes. The youngest Australian to score a test century, touring with Bradman's Invincibles, being overlooked for the captaincy twice, but finally getting a game of skipper at the home of cricket in the Battle of the Ridge. All that and much, much more. But for now, we must move on to today's main guest. An opening batsman, just like Merv. Roger Priddo was an attacking opening batsman for Cambridge University, Kent, North Hants, Orange Free State and Sussex. He scored 25,136 first-class runs with 4,100s. He played three tests for England, the first of which was in the fourth test of the 1968 Ashes. Roger, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to be here. <laughs> So I guess I just want to start with, we'll get on to uh, your Ashes year of 1968. Yes. But how did you get into cricket as a young boy? Who was your first club side? Well, going right back, I spent the first six years of my life in, uh, in Bombay. In Bombay, you, uh, if you don't know anything about cricket or you don't play cricket, then you're nobody. My dad was very keen and he um, used to take me out onto the race course and throw balls at me. And uh, so that was my first attempt at cricket. And uh, yeah, I went on from there. But I eventually came to England, obviously went to school, played for my prep school, you know, usual sort of thing. Just went on from there and all I wanted to do was play cricket. So from a young age, were you thinking about playing county cricket, maybe playing for England, or was that all a bit of a pipe dream then? Well, it was a pipe dream, but it was certainly there. Who was key in your formative years to help you develop your, your batting? Well, in my prep school, there was a chap called Eric Bickmore who had played a couple of games for Kent. He obviously saw some potential in me and he used to take me down to the school nets and again throw lots of balls at me and uh, yeah. I guess that's how it really started then. What are your thoughts on that? Is it just practice, practice, practice that, that turns people into sports people or do you, you, know, you have to have some innate ability as well? Well I think you've got to have some innate ability for certain but I think if, if you want to get to the top you, you've got to practice, practice, practice. I remember playing for Northampton against Yorkshire one game at home and Jeff Boycott was playing I think his first game for Yorkshire and he couldn't hit the ball off the square and everybody was saying oh who's this guy he'd been had quite a writer and of course Boyk's um, you know what happened because I think he practiced and practiced and practiced I mean he yeah. had an ability obviously no I think you've, you've uh, and I wasn't a good practicer unfortunately right I didn't enjoy, <laughs> I didn't enjoy going into the nets too much no. not for long anyway and then you went to Cambridge University, didn't, didn't you? So tell us a bit yeah. about your time there. How did your cricket develop there? Well, I um, went from my school, Cambridge School, where I had a certain amount of success. I remember in the freshman's nets, you know, your first year, Ted Dexter was captain. He saw something in me and from then on, you know, he, he sort of picked me out of the blue. And that's how it really all started. Ted was my, my hero, my idol. A wonderful chap and it was an absolute joy to play for him. He was a really, well, we all know Ted Dexter as a, as, as a wonderful attacking batsman. Yeah, he was, he was a nice chap. He sort of got me, he got me going. He gave me my blue in my first year. So that's really how it all started. Work-wise, well, I did as little as possible. I read history 
looking back, didn't make the most of, of that. The cricket took over, over, shall we say? Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember uh, your um, first class debut mm, for Cambridge? Funnily enough, it was, was against Surrey. In those days, the full county sides used to play against the, the university sides, Oxford and Cambridge. You know, whereas now I don't think they bother, and I don't think there's much left of first-class cricket as far as universities are concerned. But I mean, I remember the side. There was Peter May, there was Ken Barrington, Alec Bedser played. Right. In fact, he bowled us out. The ball swung, and uh, I think he bowled us out for about sixty or something like that. And he was well <laughs> past his prime. Yeah. Uh, and the next game was against Yorkshire. Those are my first two games. In fact, the first day of my cricket career was spent on the on the golf course. Poured with rain. And I remember playing golf with Kenny Barrington. That was my first day of first class cricket. <laughs> well, that beats cricket any day, doesn't it? Absolutely. Nice round of golf instead. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but what a schooling to be able to play with all those players. So to have Ted Dexter as your captain, but also to play oh, yeah. against the greats of Surrey, Yorkshire. And in those days, we uh, we were good enough to beat a couple of county sides. Do you remember Ozzy Wheatley? He captained uh, Glamorgan. He got eight, 80 wickets in a in a Fenner's season, which is basically or sort of 40% of a first-class season. Yeah. Your time drew to a close, uh, you know, you finished your degree and all the rest of it. What were your options then? Well, I'd always wanted to uh, stay in cricket. And then that, in those days, when I started, the amateur status was still uh, in place. And having come from very much a sort of amateur status background, public school and Cambridge University and all that, you know, I started playing as an amateur and I used to get my expenses. I played for Kent because we lived in Kent and that's where my sort of first, first class career outside university cricket started. And uh, it was only in 19, that was now 58, 59, 60 I played for Cambridge. Yeah. I think 62, the amateur status was abolished. Then we all became honest cricketers. Yeah. <laughs> so how did the move to North Ants come about? Good question. I, uh, I think... You know, Colin Cowdery was captain of Kent and he was likely to be there for a long time. And I remember I had sort of aspirations of captaining um, the side and I just didn't think that I had much of a future at uh, at Kent. Yeah, so I decided to move. I, you know, looking back in retrospect, it probably wasn't a very good decision, but that's the way it was. I'd been on an MCC tour 1960-61, which was a, an A tour of uh, New Zealand. Eric Russell, he was my opening partner on the tour. It was full of, a, of sort of young hopefuls and a couple of old pros like Willie Watson. Dennis Silk was our captain. It was a great tour. Dougie yeah. Paget was on the tour, you know, oh, Dougie yeah. Paget. Yeah, we had, uh, we had quite, a, quite a good lot of guys there and we had three months dedicated to New Zealand. You know, in the old days, New Zealand was sort of tacked on at the end of an Australian tour. Yeah. yeah. So it was but a beautiful country too. So then it's, I joined North Ants, yes, yeah. and um, I played under, remember Keith Andrew, he was a wiggy keeper, he, he captained the side for three or four years and then retired. Yeah, and I played for North Ants through 62, 63, through till 1970. Um, well, funny you mentioned Keith Andrew, actually, because he also played one Ashes test in, in Brisbane. He did indeed, at Brisbane. He was... <laughs> uh, I, think they, I think they lost by an innings and plenty. Who would have thought they went on to win the series? No, absolutely. From that, yeah, that ruinous stuff. Incredible. Start. Frank Tyson killed them. And yeah. Len Hutton was the first professional to captain England, I think, on that tour. And you formed, uh, just go back to North Ants, you formed a brilliant opening partnership with Colin Milburn, didn't you? What yes. was it like playing with him? Oh, gosh, wonderful. Wonderful yeah. guy he was. 
in fact, he was godfather to my youngest son, and he uh, he was an amazing, amazing player. I mean, for a man of his bulk, yeah. you cannot believe you know how quick his reflexes were. He was a great hooker of the ball, and he used to field at uh, bat pad, short leg, and you know no helmets in those days, of course. Yeah. And his reactions there in that position were quite incredible. Uh, it was a it was a pleasure to play with him. I must say we. One game I remember we against Essex Clacton and we put on 300 and something. He he got I think a double hundred and I got 150. We went in the second innings and both got naught. I used to play second fiddle to him all the time. Yeah. I used to just you know knock it around and um, make sure he got most of the strike. Did you develop a good understanding in terms of running between the wickets and things like that? Well, you you couldn't run too many short signals with Colin, <laughs> but we did. You're right. I don't think we ever had a run out between us to be honest. Really? Slightly yeah. different with Ken Taylor and Jeffrey Boycott. Well, I played with Jeffrey a couple of times. And, Did you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was one of his 500 uh, runouts that he had. Right. Uh, you're quite old when you made your test debut, 29, was I think. 28, I think. 20, yeah. 28. Just, just for a couple of days before my 29th birthday. Were there yeah. times prior to that when you thought you were playing well enough to warrant a call-up? Because, you know, looking through the history books, you, you know, you were top run scorer for North Hans for... For many of those seasons yeah, before yeah. that. Funnily enough, uh, I talked about that MCC tour to New Zealand, yeah. and I had a good, uh, you know, a good tour. I was written up quite, quite a lot by a couple of the press, potential, potential, and all that stuff. You know, I sort of went into the wilderness a bit for, for some time. I always, always thought I had a chance of getting there eventually, but you know, there were a lot of good, good opening batsmen around. You yeah. know, Eric Russell was one. David Green played for Gloucestershire, a Lancashire, ex-Lancashire player. Alan Jones, Glamorgan. Dennis Amos, Warwickshire. Yeah, if you look at the 65-66 Ashes tour, so that would have been the, the Ashes series previous to 68. As right. I was speaking to um, Eric about this, they took yes. four openers on, on that tour. Yeah. Edrich, Boycott yeah. and Bob Barbara. Bob Barber, yeah. So, you know, you're right. There was an embarrassment of riches, really, at the top of the order, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah, no, there were. There yeah. were. But Bob, of course, uh, went in number five for a long time, and then he developed uh, into an attacking opening batsman and did very yeah. well for England. Certainly. And Dennis Amos, funny enough, I was looking at that 1968 results of the of the Test matches. He played in the first Test and got yeah. a pair. Who knows? I mean, he went on to be one of the most prolific uh, run scorers yeah. in England, I would say. Okay, well, let's look um, to 68 then, if you don't mind. You scored 100 against Sussex, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I was at Northampton just prior to being, you know, I did it well just at the time as yeah. the uh, selectors were selecting the team. Do you think uh, that was the reason why you were selected? No, I don't think so. I think, no. uh, you know, I'd, I'd uh, had a good season and uh, I was obviously knocking on the door. You know, sometimes you get runs at the right time and... Um, that's what happened, I think. But the only reason I played, you know, was picked because Boycott had a bad back. I think he um, got a back injury in the second test. He was out of the third test and out of the out of the uh, fifth test. So he obviously had a bad back injury. That allowed me to be picked, which was nice yeah. of Jeffrey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you owe him one at least. <laughs> but. Funny enough, bearing in mind what you mentioned earlier, Ted Dexter was recalled for that match. There, how he was, he was. Know, how special was that to make your debut Absolutely. alongside the guy who used to captain you? Absolutely, it was amazing. You yeah. know, because they did. I mean, they used to do that sort of thing in those days. 
they'd obviously had a phone call to Ted somewhere in the middle of the season said, Ted, look, I, I think you need to play a couple of games and get into some sort of nick and then we can pick you. Had a couple of games for Sussex and sure enough, they picked him. It was amazing for me to open and him coming in at number three, quite special. So because you were you know, a little bit older, you weren't a, a green youngster, no. was it a, a little bit less intimidating going into that dressing room? Did you, did you know most of the players there anyway? Oh, I knew all the players. Yep, played against them a lot. Yes, I mean, I was sort of like an old pro almost. The standard of county cricket in those days was, was pretty good. Mm. So you weren't sort of overwhelmed, you know, stepping up from a county level up to the, uh, the international level. I had confidence at that time in my game. I enjoyed it very much because, first of all, I opened with John Edrich, who was a good friend of mine. Shame. We all know he died on Christmas Day uh, this last year. He was a great help, I must say. But the other thing was, dear old Ken Barrington, I think, I think it was his last test match that he ever played. And we were standing at the urinal together and he said to me, uh, don't be in too much of a hurry to get off the mark, Fred. And I took his advice well, because I think it took me a few, uh, few overs or so to uh, actually get off the mark. And the other thing I remember was we lost the toss and we were in the field and I was pushed down to third man or fine leg, can't remember which. And uh, in the first row, you know, all the Yorkshire supporters and this one guy, and you were quite close to them. The ropes weren't sort of five metres in like they are today. And you're sort of right up against the picket fence and this guy says, and where are you from, lad? And I thought, wow, you know, if you don't know where, uh, where your test cricketers come from, mate, it was a bit uh, off-putting. Yeah, so you had to wait until day two before you had a bat, didn't you? Because, right. uh, as you say, Australia won the toss, batted yeah. first. Yeah. Got them out for yeah. 315, so, you know, you were well in the game at that point. Funnily enough, of all the players who were still alive, who only played one Ashes test match, you were the only ones who scored a 50. Is that right? Yeah. You have been looking up all your records, eh? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you made 64. What do you remember about that knock? Was You said you were a bit slow to get off the mark, but then did you unfurl a few trademark shots and enjoy yourself? Yes, I used to, to favour the leg side a lot, although uh, I could drive through the covers quite well. I did, yes. It was strange because uh, we put on 130, I think. Everything just seemed to gel. As I say, I was in good form, so that obviously helped. Australia didn't have a great pace attack. I mean, they had Garth McKenzie, who uh, was quickish. Mm. Alan Connolly was, was the other opening bowler, who was a typical sort of English medium pacer, I would say. You know, he used to move the ball around, just seam it and swing it a bit. Good bowler, very good bowler. But he's not going to knock your head off, that's for sure. But yes, I remember Johnny Gleeson against him, who I got out to. Finally had the courage to get down the wicket at him and hit him over the top a couple of times. And then, of course, made the cardinal error when I was on 64 of sweeping. Dreadful shot, the sweep. And pitched in the rough and got a top edge, quite a thick top edge. And it was going for six. And Alan Freeman ran around from somewhere and stuck out a left hand and caught it. And that was the end of the, end of the story. Disappointed? Very disappointed. Very yeah. disappointed. Yeah, you have sort of visions in your mind. I was going to say, when you go past 50, does that happen? Do you suddenly think, hang on a minute, I'm going to get 100 on my debut here. Do you have no, to stop yourself? 50, you know? Certainly when you get into the 60s, 70s, then yeah. um, definitely. But a fantastic knock on debut. I mean, you must have been proud to, I know you're disappointed at first, but when you look back on it, think, well, you know, I performed when it mattered. Yes, exactly. 
So I say to myself, it, it was a good innings. It was a pity he didn't go on. We gave England a good start, 130. I remember Keith Fletcher played in the same, it was his debut. And he played instead of Phil Sharp, well, not instead of Phil Sharp. Mm. Phil Sharp was called up to the dressing room as well uh, for the match. And he was dropped. And of course, to drop Phil Sharp on his home ground in front of all the Yorkshire supporters was not a good idea. And it was, it was a low, slow wicket, actually. And he had a couple of edges that, that finished up landing in front of him with about, you know, sort of about a yard in front of him. And it looked as though he dropped the ball, but he hadn't. And of course, the crowd just uh, gave him a, a roasting. Right. <laughs> Nought in the first innings. I think he was 20 or not out in the second, but poor old Keith. He didn't have a good start. Right. And he went on after that, as we all know, and played many, many times for England. Was Headingley a place you liked to play? Was, were you happy that you were making your debut there? Would you, you preferred it to be somewhere else? Well, I would have preferred it to be somewhere else. I think it was the only game I ever played at Headingley. I don't yeah. think I ever played a county match there. To go on to the second innings, I know you didn't score as many runs in the second innings as the first. No. So I only got question. two and I got, a, I got a one that kept very low from uh, Garth McKenzie. Couldn't get a bat on it, unfortunately. Heated out into a draw. Well, I was interested to know that because you needed 326 to win and you had most of the day, not all of the day, but most of the day. What were the instructions? Was it, this is game on, chaps, we can go for this? I don't think so to start with. I think uh, it was just get in and see how see how you get in. I mean, obviously, yeah. don't score too slowly, but um, yeah. I think the idea was to get a start. And then, you know, if we'd had the start in the second innings that we had in the first, then I think the game was on. But I think after I was out, I think there were a couple of wickets that fell too. And I think uh, it was fairly, fairly early on that uh, it was decided that the win wasn't, uh, wasn't on. It's Tom Graven, he was captain yeah. in that game. I think it was the only game that he captained England. In fact, it just digressed slightly. I think it was, uh, he was captain on the one side and Barry Jarman was captain on the other. Laurie was injured. It was the yeah. only time that either of them captained their national team. If you had been captain, that. would you have gone for that run chase? Oh gosh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> good question. The trouble is, we couldn't afford to lose it. No, because that would have been ashes over and done with. Australia arrived in the country holding the ashes, and England lost the first test, so things weren't looking good. So uh, with one test still to go at the Oval, I think um, it was felt that number one was we couldn't afford to lose it, which is probably a negative way of looking at it. It kind of petered out into a bit of a draw. What was the, the feeling like in the dressing room after that? And how did you feel you'd gone in the test match? Well, um, I was happy with my performance. In fact, I, I thought I'd done enough to be picked for the, uh, for the last test, which happened to uh, be true. Gosh, it's a long time ago. I can't really remember, to be honest. In those days, you used to change, get in your car and get home. No team buses or anything like that. No meetings afterwards. Did you have a drink with the opposition at the end of a match like that or not? Well, I'm sure we did. Yeah. Well, no, in those days, you used to, without a doubt. Funny enough, that Aussie side were a fairly silent team. There was no, I don't remember any sledging going on at all. Quite extraordinary, actually. And then, yes, you mentioned that you had done enough to secure a place at the Oval, and you had. And then, as often happens in these situations, injury or illness plays such a huge part in these stories. Well, what happened? Yeah, it was dreadful. Well, I unfortunately got a very, very bad bout of bronchitis. 
about three days before the start. And by uh, sort of two days to go, I realized I was going to struggle. I could probably have probably got by by about the third day, but uh, I just felt yeah. terrible. And uh, I just thought I'd, I'd better just let Doug Insole know uh, that actually I'm not fit enough to play. You know, I look back and I think, God, if only I could have played in that game. The Oval had always been very kind to me. I always enjoyed playing at the Oval. Good batting wicket there. Yeah, well, the rest is history as far as Basil is concerned. Well, it is, isn't it? So that's the obvious next question because he came into the team, scored that 158. And then... Not twice <laughs> before he scored 30. The narrowest and smallest of margins can make yeah. such a difference. Yeah. No, absolutely. So there's obviously the impact on you. If you'd played in that match and scored the 100, then what would that have meant for you? But then obviously yeah. there's the wider historical impact of that. Well, what did you make of that situation and how it unfolded after that? Well, the selectors always maintain that they made cricketing decisions, and I agree with them. You know, Basil D'Oliveira went on the West Indies tour before the start of the 68 season. Didn't do very well. What I gather, hadn't sort of done particularly well off the field either. His form hadn't really warranted him playing, although he did play in the first test and got 87, I think, not out in the first innings. And I think after that, you know, he'd lost interest. He thought, well, his chance of going back to his home country and playing for England had gone. And I think he just lost interest. And for a long time in that 68 season, he, uh, you know, poor results. And it was only towards the end he was starting to uh, come back. And Colin Cowdery was always very much, I think, a pro Dolivera man. When I pulled out, I know he phoned uh, Worcester and said, no, how is Tom playing and what's the story? And they said, well, he's just got a hundred somewhere. I can't remember where it was. Colin decided to pick him. They'd actually picked a very top heavy side for the fifth test. There wasn't an all-rounder in it. When I pulled out, it gave them the opportunity of picking one. And that's why I think they picked Basil for, mm. for that test. Of course, he did very well. And I mean, to pick the touring side a day after that and not picking a chap who'd got 158, and got a vital wicket on the last day, you know, after a thunderstorm. Of course, the press went berserk. Well, as I say, the rest is history. Yeah. But I think, going back to your question, in actual fact, if you look in cricketing terms, Basil was probably the third number three all-rounder in the country. I think Barry Knight was probably the best at the time. He wasn't picked because I think he'd sold his life story to the news of the world, and he was sort of persona non grata as far as NCC was concerned. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Partright was probably the next. Um, and he, as we know, was picked and then was injured. And I think Basil was probably number three as an all-rounder. But I mean, yeah. as a purely as an out-and-out batsman, he was probably good enough. In fact, he was good enough to be picked. So it was all a bit of a disaster in one way or another. But I yeah. honestly believe that selectors did pick the side from cricketing, cricketing uh, reasons. I don't think they were influenced by the political side of things at all. Is it something that there's a lot of chat about in the dressing rooms or do you just get on with the matches? I think in those days we just used to get on with the matches. You know, we weren't interested in the political side of things and, you know, most people thought Basil was a good enough player to play, but they accepted that if he wasn't picked, he wasn't picked. And obviously that denied you the chance to tour South Africa, which having spent a lot of your life over there now, you know, is quite ironic as well. It is, it is quite um, ironic, yeah. <laughs> No, it was, uh, I remember <laughs> getting the letter from uh, from Lords about a month later to say that, unfortunately, the tour had been cancelled. 
we're going to uh, send you to Pakistan instead. <laughs> so here we go, into Pakistan. Here you go. <laughs> and we went to Ceylon first in those days. Uh, they weren't a test-playing nation, and we just right. went there for a two-week sort of warm-up, which was very nice. And then we arrived in Pakistan in, a, in the middle of a political revolution. I was going to say, you'd come from a storm in the UK with oh, all the stuff about oh. Dolavera, and it wasn't exactly plain sailing, was it? Yeah, it wasn't plain sailing at all. And we had one, the one test in Dhaka, on the east side, East Pakistan, in those days, which is now, as you know, Bangladesh. We didn't want to go there because that's where all the trouble was. Dear old Liz Ames, who was our manager, had told the uh, British High Commissioner that we really were not interested in going, to which uh, the British High Commissioner said, if you don't come, all the lives of the British subjects in this part of the world are in jeopardy, so come. And the students were in charge of the, of the, of the city of Dhaka, actually. They promised that we would be, uh, we would be safe. And sure enough, during the match, nothing happened. Did you feel safe? Uh, yeah, I don't think we, we didn't really feel otherwise. You know, they're so mad about their cricket, but I think they want, just wanted to see, uh, see a test match. And what about from a cricket perspective? You played the first two tests. Played in Lahore, didn't do well. Played uh, at Dhaka, which was the second one. Didn't do well, but we played on an absolute dust heap. Literally after two overs, the seamers were taken off and the left-arm spinner and the, the off-spinner. There was a little left-arm spinner called Purvis Jav, Javad or something like that. Second ball he bowled to me. It pitched, turned square, missed my bat by about two feet. Went to Hanif Mohammed at the first slip on the full. Yep. Everybody went up and the umpire said, that's out. So I walked, had to walk past Gerald John and he just looked at me and... Yeah. Laughed, but he had a little smirk on his face. But in those days, the Pakistan um, and Indian, I hope they're not listening, <laughs> you know, the, the home umpires was the order of the day. And that was the end of me. They called Colin Milburn back, who was playing in Australia. And he came in and scored 130, I think, at uh, Karachi. On the third day, 25,000 students marched out from the middle of Karachi to the ground, which was out of town, dug up the pitch. And that night we were back on, uh, on the aeroplane in the third test. I remember Alan Knott was 97 not out and about to score his first test 100. And he just sat in the back and said, I can't believe this, I can't believe this. That would have been his first. <laughs> you said when you were protected by the students in Dakar, you felt pretty safe. I'm guessing you didn't feel pretty safe during that third test. Not during the third test at all. Okay. At all. I mean, when you see these people, I mean, I was 12th man, so... Uh, I wasn't on the field. I think, uh, yeah, we were batting, obviously, because Alan was 97 not out. But when you saw this lot just come through the gates and just jump the fences and dig up the pitch, I mean, it was actually quite frightening. Yeah, but it was, yeah. You know, it was one of those grounds where the dressing room is underneath the stand. And we literally locked ourselves in there for about three hours. Mm-hmm. And that was frightening. Eventually, obviously, once they got the students out of the, out of the ground, they hurried us, hurried us through back to the uh, hotel where we were staying, and um, obviously they'd organised for the plane to uh, take us away that night, and there we were. It was a strange tour. Yeah, very strange. And what about going back to cricket then? Did you think that would be your last test? Because you had the West Indies then that summer, didn't you? Were West you... Indies were in that summer. Well, the selectors hadn't given up on me because... I was picked to captain the MCC side at Lords against the West Indies. And I think they, obviously at that stage, maybe had thoughts of me captaining England eventually and yep. hoped that I would get some runs, but I didn't get any runs in that game either. 
Unfortunately, that was the end of my uh, international career. Looking back, do you feel unlucky that you only played those three tests? No, I don't think so. I think it was fair. As I say, I played, I played because Boycott was injured, so um, I don't feel bad about that. Idris and Boycott were the, were the main opening pair, and it was going to be difficult to, uh, to break into that. As I say, I was old, 29. Difficult to get back into an international side, I think, once, you, once you're over 30. Yeah. Although, funnily enough, I think my last three or four years, I probably was playing the best cricket I'd played in my, in my career. But, you know, selectors, they tend to think that, you know, you've been around a long time and you've had your chance and that's it. And then, so you played with Northamptonshire until about 1970, was it? 1970, yeah. 71, 72, 73. And you were, you were captain in the side then, so you, you enjoyed that period? I did, I did. Uh, we didn't do very well. We didn't win anything. We didn't have a particularly good side. Yeah, we were sort of an average county side, I suppose. Yeah, I know it was nice. I enjoyed my last three years in Sussex. That was, that was good, playing under, initially, actually, Mike Griffith, but then the last two seasons under, under Tony Gregg, which was, uh, which, was, which was very good. I was going to ask you about one game for Sussex, actually, because, again, to go back to Pat Pocock's conversation. Um, oh, the one in Eastbourne. The, the Eastbourne game in 1972. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. I scored 100 in the first inning. Eastbourne yeah. had a beautiful batting wicket. I think I was on 97 in the second. I thought, come on, let's get this over. And Pat was bowling and I thought, yeah, come on. And I gave it a good old heave-ho and uh, dear old Robin Jackman also passed away on Christmas Day. Caught me one-handed on the, on the boundary. And I got back into the dressing room, not feeling very good about it, busy taking off my pads. And then I can't remember who the batsmen were, but one after the other came back into the dressing room. I said, what's going on? You were chasing 205 to win. We were um, walking it. Absolutely you were absolutely walking. walking it, yeah. Pat took four wickets in four balls, five in six, uh, and then seven right. in 11. That, was it I seven mean, in 11? Seven oh. in 11 balls. I mean, just ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> in his last two overs, he took seven for four. Oh, my word. So what were his final figures? Seven for 11? No, he got seven for 67, actually, because obviously he must have been bowling when you were cruising and cantering yes. to your win. Yes. That, yeah. that was an extraordinary, extraordinary result. Yeah. All because of my stupidity. I could have just knocked it in for ones and twos and we would have walked off and said, thank yeah. you very much. Had you ever scored 200s in a match before? Uh, I had. I think I'd done it twice. Did you? Once for, Cam once for Cambridge University against Somerset. Tony, Tony Lewis was my partner in those days, and um, Roy Virgin and Graham Atkinson, I think his name was Graham, opened the batting for Somerset, and I think it's the only time, well, at that stage, that uh, opening batsmen scored 100 partnership in all four innings of the match. I managed to get 100 in both innings there, and then also once uh, against Nottinghamshire, so I had done it a couple of times. Excellent stuff. And before we finish up, do you remember being a part of Fred Rumsey's inaugural meeting of the Cricketers Association? I was actually voted as the first chairman. And um, after much thought about it, I decided that because of my position as a captain, uh, wrongly, I think, looking back, I yeah. didn't think it was really you know, good that I stood as chairman. So I stepped down. And I remember that meeting very well at the start of it. I mean, let's... Let's face it, look at them today. It's fantastic what they've yeah. done. You know, I still get uh, emails and all the stuff uh, from them. Gosh, I think they do a wonderful, wonderful job. 
Ken Taylor, Fred Rumsey, Eric Russell and now Roger Prido. All one Ashes Test Wonders and all present at Fred's inaugural meeting of the Cricketers Association in 1967. A big thank you to Roger Prido for taking us through his wonderful cricketing career. And before we leave the 1960s behind and move on to the 1970-71 Ashes series in Australia, let's get a few further takes on the Dolavira affair as promised. And let's start with a view from the Australian dressing room with none other than Mr Ian Chappell. As Australian players, are you aware of what's going on with Dolavira during that series? Oh, shit, yeah, because I'd been to South Africa in 66-7, so I was very aware of South Africa and what was going on over there. Basil Top scored in the second innings to Old Trafford when we won. And I thought, oh, well, Basil's, you know, he's there for certainly next couple of tests. And they dropped him. And I thought, uh-oh, this has got something to do with South Africa, obviously. That, that was in my mind. And I thought, oh, well, we're not going to see Basil again, which I thought, and I'm sure the rest of the Australians thought, was good because Basil was a bloody tough competitor. And Basil, if you look at Basil's record, Basil always did things when they were needed. He wasn't one of those cricketers who got them when things were easy. He got he did things when it was tough. So I thought, uh-oh, Basil's gone. We won't see him again. And then, bugger me, they pick uh, Tom Cartwright for the Oval in 68 for the last test. Then he gets, I think he got crook or injured, I forget what. Yeah. And bugger me, they pick Basil. And knowing Basil, I didn't know him really well at that stage. I got to know him a lot better later on. I'd seen enough of Basil to know. I thought, boys, this is a stupid move because knowing Basil, he'll just see this right. Fuck you, I'm gonna you're gonna leave me out of that tour. It's gonna be your embarrassment, not mine. And he was actually dropped. Barry Jarman dropped him at 32 off my bowling. Anyhow, it didn't surprise me one little bit that he got 150. And I thought, righto, boys, what are you doing now? You uh, you've got to take him. And then they, you know, they left him out again. And I'm thinking, this this is a bloody joke. Obviously, something's going on in the background with South Africa. You know, then when they didn't pick him on the tour, I thought, oh, shit, this is ridiculous. And then he, they picked him as a replacement. And, and I mean, Vorster, I, I mean, I wouldn't trust anything he said at no. all. He always said that if they'd have picked him in the original squad, that would have been okay. When they picked him as a replacement, he said, this is a political move, which... I wouldn't trust uh, Vorster any further than I could throw him. No. But then again, you know, I think Doug Insol, he was playing Ducks and Drakes too, I reckon, yeah. Mm. I mean, they were both as bad as one another. Yeah, that was ridiculous. You know, Basil, Basil should have been... Well, he should never have got dropped after Old Trafford. His bowling would have been quite useful in South Africa as well. He was one of those fellas that you... You saw him just running up off this short run and bowling these little... And you could easily think, well, shit, here's some easy runs. But if there was a little bit there, he wobbled it around and moved it off the seam. And the South African tracks, that certainly that I played on, yeah. uh, he'd have been more than useful places like Joburg and Durban. He'd have been very, very useful. No, that was bullshit, mate. There was, uh, there was a lot going on. A lot more politically going on than cricket. 
You know, anybody who says it was all cricket is talking through their hat. Another person who had a ringside seat that day was the cricket writer and historian, David Frith. I saw the 158 and I saw the drop catch. That was the most fateful drop catch in history, as far as I can recall. Had he held that catch, Dolivier wouldn't have been chosen. Everyone would have said, well, perhaps he should have been in, but possibly not. Whereas uh, after the big hundred, most fair-minded cricket lovers felt that he must be in the team. And when he wasn't, suspicions were raised. And and I knew all the principals well. I knew Cowdery. Cowdery was a very slippery character. And there's film of him looking very shifty-eyed around that time when he was trying to avoid the cameras. Everyone was chasing after him, asking him, what's going on with Dolivera, you know? When he wasn't picked, and then when he was picked, and was Cartwright's injury genuine. It, it was like a Hughes detective novel that was enshrouding everyone. It was very distracting. John Edrich made 160 in that test match, and that's all forgotten. So the emotions were swishing through everyone's skulls and it's something that you need to look a bit beyond the emotion and look at the facts. Has anyone ever scored 158 and missed out on the touring team which was announced immediately afterwards? It was thought that there were risks in taking him to South Africa. He liked a few drinks. He could be very noisy. An England player told me that he'd been a great embarrassment on the tour of West Indies, 67, 8, I think. So the Foreign Office were certainly involved, and all these things, all these um, diplomatic considerations were examined, and I think they felt he was an unsafe choice, and they must have regretted that he was so successful at the Oval, but despite that, they still did not select him. Then it got really complicated when you had people dropping out with genuine, question mark, disabilities. They certainly thought that Cartwright could have toured South Africa, but he was a very political animal. And so he said, I'm injured, I can't go, and more or less say, now what are you going to do about it? There's only one bloke who can pick in my place. That was the unspoken. So in he came. Thank you to Ian Chappell and David Frith for those illuminating insights. What David Frith doesn't know about cricket is probably not worth knowing. His updated biography, Pannington Boy, will be well worth a read and it will be in a bookshop near you very soon. But I'm going to leave the final word on the Dolivera affair to Fred Rumsey, our guest on episode three. He saw the absurdity and stupidity of apartheid with his own eyes after travelling to South Africa with Dolivera in 1966. Basil was a great mate of mine. And whilst I was in South Africa, he came to East London where I was coaching. I said to him, well, when you come, come and stay with me. He said, I can't do that. And he said, I'm a coloured. I said, you come and stay with me. And... Residents of Bowes Lion Court already shunned me because Basil was staying with me, or the fact that I had a coloured staying with me. They all shunned me. And one of my friends in the apartment block, when Basil had left, said, you know, you were really silly to have a Cape coloured staying in your apartment. But we don't do that sort of thing here. I said, you might not. But he happens to be a very close friend of mine, Mm. and I do. And if he comes again, I will put him up again. 
I said, Basil's one of the nice Basil, he said. Do you mean Basil D'Oliveira? I said, yeah. Oh, you said, why didn't you introduce me? I said, you bloody hypocrite. It's time to sign off. We hurtle into the 1970-71 series in Australia next time, a series that saw the test debut of Greg Chappell and the start of Ian Chappell's reign as captain. Plus three more of our one Ashes Test Wonders. All Aussies, Ross Duncan, Ken Eastwood and Tony Dell. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. <laughs>